welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And why do we remember the Sabbath day? It's a memorial of creation and redemption. So the Sabbath teaches us to remember the cross, doesn't it? Because that's redemption. And the cross is about reconciling the whole world to, G- to God. Jesus reconciled the whole human family to God. And you may have a true Memorial Day by looking at the cross and having your heart reconciled to God. The cross can do that. It has that power. Yes, today is the weekend of Memorial Weekend, and I think it's fit for, fitting for us to pay our respects to all of our veterans and our active duty servicemen and service women. To them, we enjoy a free society, don't we? Ultimately, it's by the virtue of the cross of Christ that we have religious freedom, that we have a brief respite from strife, and uh, we have, we're able to proclaim the gospel here and across the world. A few years ago, I visited France and spoke at a Bible conference in Vichy, and my host was an Adventist minister, an elderly minister, who had vivid memories of the war there in France. And so that brought the occasion to share with him that my father had been involved in the war on, in Europe, He served as a medic in the army. So uh, this elderly pastor was part of the Free France movement. He definitely didn't side with the Axis powers. And so this this minister said, when you go back home, I want you to tell your father, thank you for coming to Europe and helping us to free Europe from Nazism. You know, I expressed that thank you to my father, and I think it touched his heart. The American nation was very slow to enter into the war against Hitler on the side of Britain and the Free French. And it wasn't until Pearl Harbor that uh, the people uh, were convinced that something had to be done. And at that time, apparently nobody knew what would happen in the Holocaust. Probably Kristallnacht seemed almost impossible far away. Our generation doesn't even know what Kristallnacht is. Let me just share with you this. Kristallnacht means the night of broken glass. In 1938, using the pretense of revenge for the assassination of a minor German foreign minister in Paris... Nazi stormtroopers were encouraged to begin street violence against the Jewish shops and synagogues and institutions. 
and in all 200 synagogues were burned, homes were destroyed with axes and sledgehammers, people were thrown from windows into the street, they were kicked to death, they were beaten with fists and trudgeons and stabbed and shot, Torah scrolls and Jewish works of history and philosophy were burned, and the violence left a hundred dead, and it was also at this time that nearly one in ten of the Jews left in the German Reich were rounded up for detention in concentration camps such as Dachau. Kristallnacht occurred on the night of November 9th. The horror of World War II seems murky to the minds of our generation. We have lived in times after that, and we hardly have any knowledge of it, except for maybe what our parents or our grandparents have told us about it. For us, uh, Memorial Day is a grand holiday, a time of pleasure and eating and being with family. But most of us have little or no sense of the reality as to what this freedom and pleasure cost others in suffering and blood. Occasionally, there's a voice that's raised that pleads for sobriety and an adequate gratitude. I want to say thank you to all of our service people. Does the world, do any of us, sense an adequate gratitude of what our present life on this planet costs the Son of God? Does anyone have an adequate sense of what we Oh, to the Son of God, what it cost him for our lives. Do we realize what it means to say the wages of sin is death? Not that God arbitrarily inflicts death on sinners. We need to understand that sin itself is destructive. It is self-destructive. It is not some kind of an arbitrary decree on God's part when the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It is in the nature of sin to be destructive. That life as we know it would have ceased on this planet except for the fact that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world in Revelation 13 and verse 8. The Lamb had to be the one whose name is Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. He is our second. He is our last Adam who truly died the real thing, so that you would not have to die it, and that is the second death. Horrible as death was for the millions who died in World War II and World War I and all the wars in between, none of those have died truly the second death as Jesus did. There is only one who has truly died the second death, and that is Christ. So we need to be sober. We need to realize at least something of what The free world owes, yes, to those brave soldiers who suffered in the wars of the past. My father took shrapnel from close combat in Europe, which uh, he still has in his body to this day. So it's certain he's 91 going on 92, and it isn't life-threatening, and he still has shrapnel in his body. And on at least several occasions, uh, uh, he tells about incoming shells landing and creating, just having great craters, you know, in the ground, but they were duds, they didn't explode. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't be with us. He tells of those kinds of miracles. He would go out and he would administer medical aid to his wounded fellow soldiers under enemy fire. My father is a very meek and humble man, and he doesn't talk very much at all unless you talk to him about those experiences. But I'll tell you this, my father and ones like him are heroes in my book. They are my, my father is my hero. And others who, he went out there without any arm, without any gun or rifle. Now that's a real hero in my book, to rescue the fallen. So let's be grateful for those also who have paid the ultimate sacrifice of their lives. None of us deserves, none of us deserves this peaceful respite that we have in world history right now. God has his hand on things, as we're going to see in Bible prophecy. So let us as Christians plead for God's mercy to enable us to realize honestly the constraint that his self-giving love imposes upon us during this time of respite. It means simply that self is crucified with Christ. Being sober doesn't mean being sad and being gloomy and being dour-faced. It means, being sober means being conscious and being thoughtful, being aware of truth, growing up into the self-giving love of agape that God has for us. You know, people with uh, extremely shallow understanding in these times when we should be growing in our knowledge are childish, apparently happy. But, you know, a child is apparently happy with what they know. But as adults, we need to grow up into the fuller knowledge of the love of God and its length and its breadth and its height and its depth. And the more that we know about our Redeemer's love for us, the greater our happiness and joy. Jesus says that your joy may be full. And the idea is in depth, in full. It's the awareness of what an eternal grave in hell could mean from which we are redeemed. For all time, there's a tear glistening. There's a tear glistening as we think of the cross, as we are smiling with joy. And at this Memorial Day, we pray that the Lord may, as Psalm 46, verse 9 says, that the Lord may make wars to cease unto the end of the earth and break the bow, and cut the spear in sunder, and burn the chariots in the fire. That is, the murderous tanks and the assault bombers. The very name of Jesus, the Son of God, he is the Prince of Peace, isn't he? Isaiah 9, verse 6. Millions sacrificed their lives in World War I, and they did that in order to fight the war, to end all wars, only to have died in vain as World War II sent many more millions into undeserved death. And yet the angels announced at his birth that Jesus would bring on, on earth peace and goodwill among men, Luke 2.14. But the Prince of Peace... He was despised and he was rejected of men. He was expelled from the world that he came to save. The world could only take 
33 years of the Prince of Peace, and then they had to be done with him. It's all they could take of him. Those of us whose lives started in the 20th century have lived through the most bloody span of years the earth has ever known in its 6,000 years of history. According to the Bible, the only way that the Prince of Peace could bring peace to the earth without being frustrated and stymied would be for his people, you and me, to cooperate with him in his work. Yes. In other words, it's useless for us to pray, peace, Prince of Peace, please bring peace to this hate-filled, war-riven world unless we serve as his agents to proclaim the gospel to bring about that peace. As my Father hath sent me, Jesus said, even so send I you. John 20, verse 21. He's the vine, we are the branches. That must be intimately bound with him for his purposes to be worked out upon this earth. And that is the proclamation of the good news of the gospel to others. Every one of us involved with that. And he spells out the formula there in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. There he promises that he will undertake to hold the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow, provided his people on earth proclaim the seal of the living God. That's the gospel, the good news, the message of the cross. He commands those terrible four winds that began to break loose in those World Wars I and II, and in the Vietnam War, and the other wars, and now our Afghanistan War. He proclaims to those angels, hurt not the earth till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. It's an illusion for God's people to assume that horrible wars contribute to the progress of God's work by bringing conviction to hearts and taking away our idols. It's not God's plan to forcibly remove our idols. War terrorizes people so that they can't even contemplate the good news of the gospel. No war has no redeeming evangelistic value. Now, let's learn what the sealing message is and commit ourselves to proclaiming it. It's the long overdue message that is yet to enlighten the earth with its glory. Revelation 18, 1 through 4. So, Lord, please wake us up. Wake us up. For sure, it was never, it was never God's will that the world should suffer another horrible world war. Christ came not to judge the world, but to save it, he says in John 12, verse 47. It was never his will. His will that the Holocaust could take, should take place. The horrors that are depicted there in the book of Revelation are not presented as something that God wants to inflict on humanity, but they are warnings of what Satan purposes to bring upon the world. And God would repair us and he would teach us how to escape the hell that Satan wants. Revelation would encourage us that we are not helpless captives through all of the hail and the fire of the seven trumpets of chapters, Revelation 8 through 11, there is the constant ministry of the angel with the golden censer that is filled with the much incense of Christ's righteousness for the world. 
and that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. You see that in Revelation 8, 3, and 4. And so those tornado winds of human passion are represented as being restrained by four angels whose mission is to hold them that they should not devastate the earth until the angel ascending from the east can seal the servant of, servants of God in their foreheads. But while we pray ever so piously for God to hold those tornadoes of human evil, shouldn't we cooperate with him in proclaiming the good news of the sealing message of God's love that reconciles alienated hearts to him? Wherever there is trouble, there is where the reconciling message must be proclaimed. There is nothing that Satan hates worse than the pure gospel. So let's not be cowards and let him have his way again. How could anyone distill any good news? How could anyone distill any good news out of the cat and mouse game that we are playing with Iran? That Iran should have the capability of nuclear weaponry. That's unthinkable. Now, where's the good news? There is good news. God still loves the world for which he gave his only begotten son. His gospel of grace does reach at least some people who respond to it. Those some are scattered among all of the nations, including Iran. And through them, the Holy Spirit still restrains those tornado forces of evil that threaten to destroy the world itself. Revelation 7 is still true when it reminds us that God has commissioned four angels to hold those four winds of strife. And the same God who sent Jonah to preach to the heathen Ninevites sends his messengers today with a message calling for repentance. His church has the privilege of leading out in accepting Christ's call to repent. For Jesus says to Laodicea, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The Seventh-day Adventist church should be a leader of repentance before the world. The Bible is still a true book which predicts that the world is to be lightened with the glory of a closing message of good news, which means that the pure, true gospel of Christ will be given precedence over Iran's evil purposes of developing nuclear weaponry. Yes, there's good news, but it imposes a responsibility upon us. For if this planet possesses the means of self-destruction, the only conclusion that we can come to is that our continued life on this planet is a gift of God's grace. And that requires thanksgiving. It it requires renewed dedication to the one whose grace gives us all that we have. There was an Adventist Christian who, during the Second World War, wanted to serve his country, but he did not want to shoot anyone. He did not want to learn how to uh, shoot a gun. So he refused to bear arms. They They classified him as a conscientious objector. Now, I forget what Desmond Doss said. He says, I object to that classification. I'm not an objector. I'm conscientious. I'm conscientious about the fact that I don't want to kill anybody. 
I don't want to hurt anybody. I want to heal people. I want to bring them the good news. And so his own fellow soldiers, as he was training here in the States, they didn't want him by their side. Why was that? Because they figured out that if anybody wanted, went into war and they started to be shot at, you know, the natural thing would be to take up a gun and shoot back, right? But if this guy doesn't want to shoot back, he's got to be a coward. Now, nobody wants to go to war with a coward. Isn't that true? Nobody wants to go to war with a coward. Amen? Amen. Amen. So when they failed to get him thrown out of the army, they were forced to take him. They were forced to take him to the Pacific War. And on the invasion of Okinawa, he single-handedly rescued scores of his wounded and dying fellows from an escarpment under enemy fire. And I'll tell you, they learned who was the true hero in their bunch, and it was Doss. Doss the Adventist, who stood by them in the greatest hour of need. In fact, he was the only one that volunteered to go up on that escarpment out of his whole bunch that had guns. The only one. I want to ask you the question this morning. I forget exactly how Romy put it to me the other day, and Romy's been in the service for a long time. But uh, he's told me, you know, you want to make sure who your fellows are before you go into war, because you don't want to go into war with cowards. Who do you want to go into this war of the great controversy with? You don't want to go with cowards, do you? You don't want to be out in the lead and have people firing at you in your back. Friendly fire, they call it. Only those who exhibit loyalty to the true gospel are worthy of standing with the faithful in this final hour of crisis. Do you like to fight battles? Or do you like to run away from them? I've met many wonderful Christian people members of the church who want peace so much that they refuse to get down into the arena where the battles for the Lord have to be fought. To tell you the truth, they'd rather watch television than study for themselves to know the truth about the issues in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. But Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. My mother has that text on her gravestone. Fight the good fight of faith. And Jude says that we should contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, he says, who seek to corrupt that faith. And Jesus tells us clearly, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am not come to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, you would expect that anyhow. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Matthew 10, 34 and 36. Wow. Is that what it means to follow Christ? Wow. But, says someone, surely this doesn't apply to conflicts within the church. 
The world's full of controversy. I go to church so I can find a place of rest and peace. Well, I need to tell you the truth. Revelation 12, 17 says that the dragon, the devil, in these last days is wroth with the true church. And he's gone to make war with the remnant church where the devil's most fearful strategy is to make war within the church against the pure, true gospel of Jesus. Now, if Satan can corrupt that, he hopes yet to win the war against Christ. And so Peter's advice is exactly what we need today. In 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober and be vigilant and resist them, or resist him steadfast in the faith. But please be sure that you have your wits about you because that word sober means to think carefully lest you end up resisting the true work of the Holy Spirit. If you do that, you've crossed that line beyond which repentance is impossible. Now, the stakes in the great controversy are very high. And the only place where you can avoid the battle is in the grave. And please don't choose to go there. Get on your knees. Study and learn. And stay awake and watch. And stand for the right, though the heavens fall, says one wise, wise, uh, inspired writer. It seems increasingly difficult for those four angels to restrain those hurricane winds And long ago, the the frightful battle of Armageddon that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 16 and in numerous other Old Testament prophecies, the battle of Armageddon long ago should have taken place. And those four angels have bought us a little space of time. But let's not kid ourselves into assuming that it's business as usual, that we can use this present illusion of peace and prosperity for our selfish pleasure. Christ's same sermon in Luke 21 urges us right now to take heed to yourselves lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with sensual pleasures of this world, all innocent of themselves but out of place for a time of emergency, a time of war. The war behind all wars is winding up, and that is the great controversy between Christ and Satan Let's get close to Jesus and get close to our high priest. And then after describing the great signs that indicate the time of the end is near, Revelation 7 describes the events in the last days when terrible violence is seething like a cauldron below the surface in human hearts worldwide. It is symbolized by those four winds upon the earth and a tornado of passion that is about to break loose, and those four heavenly angels are commissioned to hold those four winds as one might hold a team of wild horses. And then another angel comes on the scene from the east, crying with a loud voice to the four angels, Hold, hurt not the earth, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And thus is symbolized the proclamation of a message that prepares a people to be ready not only for death, but for the literal second coming of Christ. The symbolism is vivid. It's like a cartoon explaining in a few words the meaning 
of world history today. God has entrusted to his people on earth his remnant of Revelation 12, 17 and 14, 12, the work of proclaiming the sealing message. And if they will be faithful in proclaiming the everlasting gospel in a way that the message can prepare a people for translation, then the Lord says he will do his part and hold or restrain those terrible four winds of war. And the sealing truth is not a watered-down message that is borrowed from Babylon, but the authentic gospel that Paul says is the power of God unto salvation, the message of Christ's righteousness. And oh, how much we have hoped that we have learned the lessons from World War II and the Korean War and the Vietnam War, and where is the Prince of Peace And what is Jesus doing? Is he helpless to intervene? Is he not king of kings and lord of lords? We need to understand he is not yet king, for he is still high priest, ministering his blood in the heavenly sanctuary. This is what the book of Hebrews and Revelation tells us. He will become king when he is When as intercessor, he leaves his high priestly ministry. You see, Adam sold out. Adam sold out his appointed rulership over this world. He sold it off to Satan, who now claims that he is the prince of this world. And almost all have chosen him as the prince. And that is why it is the princes of this world who crucified the Lord of glory. So far from now being the king of kings and the prince of princes, Jesus still remains despised and rejected of men and a man of sorrows and griefs. And many even of those who take the name of Christian are at heart his enemies. Although Satan is the prince of this world, Jesus can work through those who follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. He commissions them to be the light of the world. He says that they are the preservation of the world because they are the salt of the earth. Thank God for a handful of remnant. Thank God. And it's for that reason he's able to commission the four angels to hold the four winds of the earth that they should not permit total hell on earth to break out. So the best way to help the present And all future war-ravaged nations is repentance and turning to God, revival and reformation within the church that professes to constitute Christ's followers. For thousands of years, enlightened rulers have used dialogue and diplomacy to solve political problems, and then if all else failed, they would use military force, and the result is wars. And many sincere godly people have understood that the Bible supports the idea of a, quote, just war, unquote. For example, the war against the Canaanites in the promised land. God told Israel that it was a just war because those people had rejected 400 years of God's continued efforts to give them repentance for their sins against humanity. Justice in warfare today is elusive. No personality, no race, no ethnic group, no nation is of itself more righteous than another. The human race are all sinners in Adam. 
and all of whatever religion have participated in the murder of the Son of God, who was sent here precisely for the purpose of saving this planet. This is the world's guilt. The truth must be recognized and believed. If there is such a thing as any rightness or righteousness in any just war, its source is therefore the righteousness of Christ. And no nation or race can claim an exclusive right on righteousness. It is always a gift of God's grace, and pride and arrogance immediately vanish in the face of it. God laid that guilt on Christ as the second Adam of the whole human family. The ultimate sin of mankind is murder. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he spoke of the whole human family. And thus he calls on us to forgive our enemies, both personal and, did he mean it, national? Forgive our enemies. Politicians will immediately say, well, that's impossible to do. Very well. What's the alternative? It's war. With all of its attendant horrors. And then the ultimate result is the very end, Armageddon. Last week where I was speaking, after the worship service, the pastor was called into his office by one of his parishioners who is a homeland security officer in Reno. Well, the pastor came out of his office all shook up, and he began to report to his congregation that this fall, you're going to, this homeland security officer has all kinds of memos indicating that there's going to be civil unrest and the whole place is going to go into chaos over the elections to come in the fall. I think it was a little bit of fear-mongering. I believe that the Lord has commissioned the angels to hold back the winds of strife. But that doesn't mean for us to get on our laurels and be real secure and say, oh, everything just continues like it has from the beginning. This respite and restraint is for us to proclaim the good news of the gospel and the sealing message. Furthermore, fear never motivated people properly, and all it does is like the wolf, why the little guy says, wolf, wolf, wolf is coming, and the wolf never comes, you know. That's the way fear is. It never motivates properly people to see Jesus and have their hearts reconciled to him. But dear friends, the gospel teaches us to forgive our enemies, even our national enemies. It is the only healing power that exists. In the meantime, any hope? Yes. Proclaim Christ's beautiful truth of justification by faith. It will get through. Yes, it will get through to some of the kings of the earth so that angels can hold those four winds. The great controversy between Christ and Satan is the conflict that leads up to the final battle of Armageddon. It's more portentous than the world conflict with Al-Qaeda. On its outcome hangs the destiny of this planet, the victory of Christ over Satan in Gethsemane and on his cross exposed Satan's true character to the unfallen universe so that the great dragon was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him, says John. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and the kingdom of your God and the power of his Christ. In other words, so far as heaven is concerned, Christ has won the great war. 
But as to the inhabitants of this earth, the great controversy goes on until our brethren can be described, they overcame him, that is the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And that's not an insurance policy kind of relationship with the lamb. You pay your, where you pay your premium, I accept Christ, and now he covers you in a vicarious substitution way as the insurance company covers your loss if your house burns down. You don't trouble your head because you've got insurance. They're going to cover you and restore you whole again. But Revelation pictures our brethren in a far more intimate relationship with the Lamb than the popular self-centered concern where it's, I'm okay, I'm covered, I'm saved, I'll sit back and relax and occupy until Jesus comes. No, the sanctuary service, which illustrates this great controversy, tells us that now is the cosmic day of atonement. It's time for a total experience of oneness with Christ through faith. His people become partakers of the divine nature. They experience, I am crucified with Christ. They comprehend the grand dimensions of his love, agape. They overcome even as Christ overcame. They grow up into him unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. They sense the heart burden that Jesus carries. This is more than a vicarious substitution. It's realizing a shared substitution. It is an intimate, an intimate oneness with the Lamb through faith. Do you see that this is good news? Is anybody tired of disasters? They come fast. Several major earthquakes in short order, and then the tornado disasters. And, you know, it's not just simply better journalism and people right on the spot to report it. Because, but I believe these things are increasing to get the world's attention because of the distress of nations. Men's hearts are failing them for fear. And with modern journalism, we see the distress of nations and the fear that is portrayed vividly in the photos that enable us to identify with the millions who suffer. But who thinks of the pain that God must suffer through it all? Who thinks of that? Do we not read that he cares for even a little bird when it falls to the ground? Jesus has promised to be with us unto the end of the world. And when we suffer, he suffers. He lo- his love binds the human race to himself. Does, does he not long for all of this pain to come to its end? We know that Jesus is still alive. He's risen from the dead. And he's not forgotten the human race that he died to redeem. And he wants to come the second time in fulfillment of his promise. And if we say that he has delayed his coming, we make ourselves evil servants. The truth is that his people have delayed his coming. They are too content with the pleasures of living in the economies of the Western world in America that we enjoy. Many are indifferent either to the sufferings of the world or the suffering of the heart of God. If it is difficult for us to grasp 
that kind of identity with him that would indicate that we are immature and childish when he wants us to grow up into the maturity of his bride. So in order to learn to identify with Christ, begin identifying with him as he hangs on his cross. Read about it in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. To read those chapters with even a beginning of understanding will stretch your mind, your spiritual muscles, and then graduate to identify with Christ in his high priestly ministry today in the most holy apartment and sense his concern for the multitudes of people on this planet and his yearning for his church to cooperate with him in ministry to them and sense his disappointment and enter into his message of Revelation 3, 14 to 21. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Sense, to do this is to begin to sense how Jesus feels. And when you finish a thoughtful study of the book of Revelation, then you will cry out, I think, with John, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Instead of praying self-centered prayers, you'll begin praying prayers for Jesus to receive his reward. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.